Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So we're looking at Judges this quarter. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you've endured. You've come back two weeks on Judges. We're going to see how long y'all keep coming back to hear the weird stories. Maybe that's why you came. Um, But thinking about Judges 2 this week reminded me, like a lot of biblical text, of the comedian Brian Regan. Um, And uh, if y'all haven't heard his stuff on um, traveling through an airport, he talks about losing his bag to an airline. Are y'all familiar with this bit by Brian Regan? Y'all know Brian Regan. Go home, watch his stuff on YouTube. It'll change your life. Um... Well, he talks about going, what it's like to like deal with the airlines when you lose a bag. And he talks about going to the agent. He's like, yeah, so I gave y'all my bag a few hours ago. And it's not spinning around on that thing over there. So I was wondering kind of what hell on earth I need to be prepared for. And they, you know, give you the spiels can come later today, tomorrow, all that kind of stuff. And then he says this, and he goes, and then the guy looked down and said, in the meantime, don't worry, I have this. And the airline attendant pulls out from under the counter and hands him a little bag with a zipper on it. And Regan says, it says, essentials kit. (laughs) And he goes, oh, these are the essentials. I clearly overpacked. <laughs> I thought I needed all the stuff I so meticulously packed for my suitcase. I stand corrected. If that was really an essentials kit, if you had one, you wouldn't need anything else. He says you'd be at work and they'd be like, What happened to Harry? Why isn't he at work today? And the the coworker would be like, Oh, Harry happened upon an essentials kit. <laughs> he opened it up and it was filled with food, shelter, and love. <laughs> So that's Brian Regan for you. And, uh, and it's a humorous way to kind of... He, he actually says some really interesting things in there. Uh, especially at the end when he says, like, what's in the essentials kit? What are the essentials? Because we all have, like, this list of for the, this collection of what the essentials are. Of if we needed... If we had these things, life would be radically different. Um, and so tonight, really, the, the fundamental question is kind of, what is your essentials kit? What do you look for for life and peace and salvation? God made everyone, Christian or not, with this appetite for a thing called shalom. That's the biblical word for it. Uh, this appetite for life the right way. I want it to be the right way. I want me internally, emotionally, psychologically to be the right way. I want externally societies and, and material things and, and economies to be the right way. I want my body to be the right way. And what we're doing with all of our life is trying to get rid of all the stuff that breaks our joy. Some of the stuff's in us. Some of the stuff's outside of us. And that kit, all the tools you use, that's your essentials kit. The things you trust to get to shalom. What you serve, what you worship, what takes up your time and energy, what fills your imagination, those are your essentials. And in asking that question, what Judges is doing is forcing us to re-articulate the way we think about the idea of sin. So pray with me now, and then let's do that. Father, as we encounter these stories, we need you to be with us and teach us that our heart is not very different from these ancient people that we read about, that humanity hasn't changed. Um... I pray that you would help us understand ourselves, not just so we can understand ourselves, but we can see how you respond to what is broken in us. Be with us, Holy Spirit. We need you to be here. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So the question is, what we're asking and what Judges 2 is teaching us, among other things, is what is sin? And that might be a word that when you hear it, you laugh it off. It's weird. It's dated. It's old school religion. I don't believe it anymore. When you hear that word, you might feel guilty. You kind of think of some bad habits that you have. When you hear that word sin, you might not be sure what to think. You're not sure that it's in your vocabulary if you want to believe it or not. And what I want to propose to you tonight, that what Judges 2 is teaching us, is that sin is not simply misbehavior, which is often the way we think about it, that what sin fundamentally is, is a worship disorder. It is the practice of trying to fill your essentials kit with anything other than God. God doesn't call sin misbehavior here. He says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. How? He doesn't go into a list of all the bad things they did. He will later. But he says, by serving the other gods. Verse 17, it does say, they didn't obey the commandments of the Lord. But what precedes that? Right? They hoard after the other gods and bowed down to them. And this is a huge principle that you have to get to understand the Bible and Christianity. And I think you have to get to understand yourself as well. That we think about this idea of sin and we think about it simply as some misbehavior. Some bad habits that we have. And that is, that's radically insufficient and that's not what the Bible teaches. And the principle that you first have to get in order to understand sin is, is this... What you do, and by what you do, I mean everything you do. Every minute, every thought, every word, everything you're doing is determined. You go about doing and thinking and speaking. It's determined by what you hope in. Our behavior, which is what we normally think sin is, is simply a a wrong kind of behavior. That's actually a fruit And fruit means it's an organic result, right, of what's in our hearts. What you do is determined by what you hope in. The Bible confirms this everywhere. Luke 6, a good man does good things from the good in his heart. An evil man does evil things from the evil in his heart. In Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. That means be vigilant about what your heart is attached to because everything you do flows from it. If you want to understand why you do the things you do, why you feel the way you feel, and why you say the things you say, you can't simply look on the surface. You have to begin to ask the question of, what is my heart attached to? What do I hope in? What do I dream about? What are my nightmares? What do I stress and cry and rejoice about? To understand yourself and to understand those things and to understand our behaviors. Our behaviors are actually all signs that we have to look past into our hearts to begin to understand who we are. And there, sin starts when we begin to understand and see that we hold something dear in our hearts, that our hope and that our salvation, what is central to our identity and everything, is something other than God. Sin's a worship disorder. So what happened to the Israelites, right? It starts in verse 10. They, they descend. The generation were gathered to their fathers. And there came another generation after them who didn't know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. For, Israel, for these faithful God followers, what happened? The first thing happened is they kind of descend into this world broken and this kind of sin-broken lifestyle. The first thing they did is they forgot God. And that doesn't mean they forgot about God. 
They know the stories of their religion, the Exodus event, these kind of defining moments, these promises to Abraham and Moses. They knew the stories, but God no longer penetrated their hearts. They didn't treasure Him. He was not the center of who they were. And that's us, isn't it? The story of Jesus is information. It's information that maybe many of us would say is pretty important. But is Jesus our friend? Does He have our hearts? Does He have our imaginations? We used to. God was no longer their God. Beyond simply, they're not saying they weren't aware of Him. They would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, 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 we're, we're faithful Jews. That's Him. But they didn't have their hearts anymore. And one of the things Judges actually is going to address all throughout the book, if you read it, is the tendency we have to have a once exciting encounter with God when the truths of His love and His beauty and His grace grab our hearts and then that excitement waxes and it wanes and then we find ourselves weeks or months or even years later realizing without even knowing it that all of a sudden our life is done without reference to God altogether. We haven't prayed in weeks or months or years. And Judges is about actually God dealing with a forgetful people. Not cognitively forgetful of the information, but peoples whose hearts forget what they loved. And maybe you find yourself in that place. You've forgotten what you loved. How? How did the Israelites go about forgetting? How do we go about forgetting? Because it's not simply that something fades. It's not what happens here. The reason our love for God falls away is because we begin to pursue something else. Our hearts are never empty. They're constantly filled with something. What happens in verse 12, it teaches us about the heart of being, uh, of being a human. They went after other gods. Your heart's a vacuum, and it never remains a vacuum. It is always being filled with one or another thing. They immediately went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them. Now you understand why God wanted to get rid of all the elements of all the gods of the foreign peoples. They bowed down to them and they provoked the god to anger and they abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashroth. And this is the moment where at first we think, these are ancient people, we're not like this, I can't identify with what's happening here. They worshipped idols. We don't do that. But consider for a moment what was going on. Baal was the god of weather. Ashtoreth was the goddess of sex and fertility. In an ancient agrarian society, what was the key to life and peace? Crops and children. You cannot live without the harvest, and children are your labor force and your legacy. They worship the gods that the world told them would give them the essential things in life. Food and children. And as always the case, their behavior actually conformed to the image of whatever it is that they held most dear in their hearts, whatever it is they worshipped. They worshipped the Baal and Ashtoreth that was steeped, that kind of worship was steeped in temple prostitution and orgies. The fertility of the land and the fertility of the womb was the key to life and peace. So the practices of fertility became the centerpiece of their religious worship. We always become like the gods we worship. What Judges is teaching us is that sin is replacing in your heart the hope and and love for the one true God, replacing Him with anything else. Sin is a worship problem. The misbehavior comes 
after the worship problem starts. So what do we do with this? In a, in a 12-step program, if you're familiar with AA or anything like that, I was reading uh, about those the other day. You're trying to get, someone is trying to get their souls and their body's fixation off of a substance, right? And do you know what step in the 12 steps people most often relapse on? It's step number four. And step number four is this. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. That's where people relapse. This is why I think we relapse right there. That our attempt at transformation stalls out right there. Because we're scared of what searing honesty about our actions and our anxieties really say about what's important to us. We're scared of saying, what do our behaviors, our words, and our thoughts reveal is at the center of our heart. And the reality is, I think everybody's religious. Christian or not, other phase or whatever. And by that, I mean everybody is doing religious things all the time. So in the searing, the honest inventory, the first question is this. Everybody meditates. Meditating is something grabbing a hold of your mind and your imagination and rolling around and rolling it around and considering all the aspects of it and thinking about it all the time to where you've thought about it so much it starts to become a part of you and it starts to affect you. Do you know what worrying is? It's a form of meditation. You think about something all the time. It starts to control you. It starts to affect you emotionally, physically, psychologically. What do you think on? What do you worry about? It shows you what's central to your heart. What's disaster for you? What has to be avoided at all costs? The Israelites, bad harvest and childlessness. Your disasters that you fear show you what's central to you. But more than anything, the thing that we all do, all humans do, that is deeply religious is we all sacrifice. What are your sacrifices? And this includes both what do you sacrifice your time and energy to, but it goes way beyond that. If your idol, the thing you hold on to, is strength and independence, then you will sacrifice commitment. And that means right now we can look at your text messages and your emails and see you quitting things and backing out of commitments all the time. Right? If your sense of worth is in being right, that's what your salvation is, that's what your hope is, you're right all the time, you'll sacrifice warmth and humility. You'll be always arrogantly dismissing and delegitimizing all other views because you have to be right. If your idol is your cause, see, idols can be good things. If it's your cause, you'll sacrifice respect for anybody who doesn't get in on your thing. You'll hate the people that don't love your cause or get in on it. Why do they not understand how important this is? And all of a sudden, you sacrifice your ability to respect other people. Right? If your idol is the perfect standard, uh, Stanford well-roundedness, you'll sacrifice emotional health on the altar of overcommitment. You'll sacrifice also, you've seen this happen, maybe experience excellence in one area for mediocrity in like eight areas. If your idol is being liked, you'll sacrifice the integrity of being a truth teller on the altar of not wanting to upset anybody. You won't disagree with or tell your friends they're doing something wrong. Sin is a worship disorder. Worship is meditation 
sacrifice. Those are the religious activities of worship. Where's your mind? What are you sacrificing? What do you have in your heart that is more important than God Himself? Sin is attaching our hopes and dreams to anything other than God. And there's some implications, four implications. One about God, three about us. Seems like it should be the other way around. But So we got one implication is this. God's anger, which is all throughout this passage, they provoked His anger, His anger was kindled. It's the anger of a scorned husband. It's not the anger of an unjust deity. This is good anger. This is the anger of love, not the anger of evil. If a wife was not angry when her husband was unfaithful, you would say, she doesn't care. If a parent wasn't angry at his child's stupid decision, you would be a bad parent. And how do we know this is good anger? Read the whole Testament, but it's told to us right here. We are confirmed that this is the good kind of anger. This is the anger of love. This is, I hate the infidelity in this relationship. Because in verse 18, we're told it's anger mixed with pity. His heart was angry and it was sad. And His love manifests itself in discipline. God and His fatherly love, like any good parent, all of you will agree with the way God treats Israel in the Old Testament when you become a parent. You will discipline your child because you love them. God allows hard things in the lives of the Israelites and into our lives because He loves us, because we need to be trained that our sin breaks us. And so he has allows a little bit of a moment of breaking so that we don't experience an eternity of breaking. His saving grace will also have attended to it the suffering of discipline because he loves us, because he loved Israel. We need to learn and feel that sin damages us. That's the implication about God. As we see Him relate to Israel, as we see Him deal with this worship disorder. Three things about us. The first thing is this. If sin is a worship disorder and not simply a misbehavior, this means your experience of guilt, do I feel bad or not about what I did, is not always a sound indicator of sin. Just because you don't feel guilty doesn't mean it's wrong. There are a lot of times we are in sin and don't feel it. At the same time, there are a lot of times we're not in sin and we feel that we are. So one implication is the way we feel about something, I feel like that was good, I don't feel guilty about that, that doesn't necessarily mean we're in sin or not. Sometimes you're going to feel guilty about things that are not wrong. I've spoken to a number of y'all, girls, if you're at Stanford and your freshman year talk about wanting to get married, this culture will make you feel guilty. If you want to rest, this culture will make you feel guilty. If you want to quit a class, this culture will make you feel like a failure. You feel illegitimate forms of guilt. Y'all are free. You can quit a class. You can rest. You can get married. Did you know that? I don't think y'all know that. You can. It's all, all of those things are great. Quitting class, resting, and getting married, all totally awesome. The God of the Bible loves those. Stanford hates those. <laughs> God has made you for companionship and rest, but the gods of this place say early marriage and rest are sin. And so now what you experience is a conflicted conscience. Guilty because some false gods have begun to tell you and grab a hold of you. 
telling you, no, 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 you can't do those things. At the same time, a lot of times we're not going to feel guilty about things that are legitimately sinful. This one's a little intense, but it's kind of a perfect example. We're going to talk about masturbation. Woody Allen calls it sex with his favorite person in the world. This culture's religion is self, right? Do what's best for you. Pursue your dreams. Look out for yourself. What is the religious practice of this culture? Build your self-esteem. Let's give trophies to everybody. So it makes sense that a self-referential sexuality and an uncommitted sexuality, that you would never feel like it's wrong. That, that's the logical sexual self-expression of our culture. Whereas God's design for sexuality is that it unites two people in a lifelong, life-producing, unity and community-building interaction. Hence, it's connected to marriage and family. Right? But maybe we don't feel guilty about sex outside of marriage. Right? Whatever you serve, what's going to happen is that God is going to start to train its ethics in our hearts. Because it has an ethical system, a way you must behave in order to please it. And it will train your conscience so that that God determines what's right and wrong, what's to be sought after and what's not to be sought after. So first implication is we can't trust our conscience anymore when our hearts are pursuing a bunch of different things. That's why the second implication is if God alone can sustain us and sit at the center of our hearts and fill it, then no created thing can do that, which means we're going to collect a bunch of gods. We're going to serve a bunch of things, not just one. Because you might be thinking, I can't place my life around one certain thing or one narrative. When you say that and then I examine my life, there's not one story there, there's not one goal. Well, of course not. Only if it's the God of the Bible could you say there's one. If it's not the God of the Bible, then you've got a collection of things that you're trying to fill that up with. And that's why there's all this conflict in your conscience about all these different things. There's no consistent narrative. I think honesty is important. I would say that. It's part of my upbringing, but I cheat. Right? I think people should speak their mind, but I don't want to, sound anything, I don't want to say anything that sounds judgmental. I want, I'm, I'm a Christian, but when God's people gather, I sleep in. Why do we have all these inconsistencies? Because our hearts are actually in the service of a lot of different gods. The reason it's hard to look at our life and say there's not just one thing is because our lives are actually a big negotiation between a lot of things and that's why we binge and purge. What is work hard, play hard? It's, those are the worship courses of the Baal and Ashtoreth of our culture. Right? Success and pleasure. This is the way my favorite old English Puritan, if you get to know me, I love John Owen. He says, The reason a natural man's not always perpetually in the pursuit of one thing night and day is because he has so many to serve, everyone crying out to be satisfied. So you're carried out with a great variety, but still in general, everything lies towards the satisfaction of self. That leads to the third point. Our conscience doesn't always tell us what's sin and what's not sin. We can't trust it. We're serving a lot of different things. Thirdly, we're helpless. This is where Israel finds itself. Verse 14, God gave them over to their plunderers. They're enslaved by the Canaanites. They're distressed. They're afflicted. They're oppressed. They no longer could resist their enemies. What they first sought to control now controls them. We think when we're choosing to worship something, we're choosing mastery over it. Whatever you worship gains mastery over you every time. Oscar Wilde was an Irish poet, late 19th century, whose reputation was one of 
He was a libertine. He did whatever he wanted. He was, he was um, flamboyant about the fact that one thing he did not care about was what everybody thought about him. He was free from social constraint. That's part of his kind of historical um, <coughs> character. I, he did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He was a champion for being free from social restraint. These are his words written from prison, reflecting on the life he chose. The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into two long spells of sense, into, sorry, into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately, I deliberately went into the depths and searched for new sensation. And the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought. Perversity became to me the sphere of passion. And I grew careless for the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forget that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has one day will cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer captain of my soul and I didn't know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me and I ended in horrible disgrace. He experienced what Israel experienced. What I think we experienced. Namely that whatever we worship ends up controlling us. You think you control your work. Doesn't it control you? You think you control your appearance. Doesn't your appearance have control over you now? We want to control other people's opinions. Don't other people's opinions now have control over you? I've talked to a lot of college seniors who've lost themselves, and it was interesting. Maybe it was traditional college wild things they feel like they lost themselves to, but a lot of seniors, and maybe some of y'all feel that now, you're supposed to find a passion at Stanford, and now they're controlled and fearful of it. Impact, success, for some people, is even religious moralism. That's what, I, that's what I wanted to define me at Stanford, and I got to the end, and I'm controlled about it, and it feels empty. The hideousness of sin is that we give our love not to the one who made us and who loves us and who gives us all good things, but the language of this passage is graphic, that like Israel, verse 17, we've hoard, we've given our life to something else. What is God's solution to this dilemma? The Israelites have lost themselves to the Baal and Ashereth. They fall like we do on the front end. This is not a big deal. Right? This is harmless God. Why are you so uptight about all these Canaanite gods? We don't care. We're not Canaanites. It's not going to happen to us. But these things are small. They're not going to master me. That's how we all feel. But the process is long and incremental. And no one really changes overnight. But just like the Israelites, because we're not vigilant and because we're not honest in our own hearts over time, we've forgotten God. We know of Him. But we no longer love Him and we're lost. And we're mired now in a pantheon, right? We all have our religious pantheon in our closet. All our idols. Trying to serve all of them at once. And we're just now very afraid, self-obsessed, enslaved people. And God's solution is a deliverer. He sends a judge. Someone who comes as a response to the fact that in brief moments, the Israelites cried out. In brief moments, we finally despair. We see things as they are, controlled, and now we're helpless because we can't get out on our own. 
We see that we're deeply religious people who can't extricate ourselves from our addictions and we cry out. And he sends a judge that's a deliverer. And what the book of Judges is clear to say, and we'll see all throughout the quarter, but you see it here now, is that these judges could only temporarily do for Israel what needs to be done. They were insufficient and they were a pattern for a final deliverer. And God does in Jesus the very opposite of what all of our addictions do. Stanford says, you serve us and maybe we'll reward you. Jesus comes and serves you long before He asks for your service. Stanford says, make all the sacrifices and maybe we'll reward you. Jesus comes and sacrifices for you first. His deliverer, all of our other gods motivate us with fear and threat. If you don't make the appropriate sacrifices, if you don't give yourself to this, if you're not committed, if you're not devoted, oh, there's going to be consequences. Jesus comes and the first thing He does is destroy fear and threat. He absorbs the wrath of God for our sin first so that God reserves no wrath for His people. Paul said in Romans, there's no condemnation. Christians can't reacquire condemnation from God. Jesus comes and takes away threat and fear as motivations in order to then give you the motivation of gratitude and joy. That you serve this new king, this God, not because you're afraid, but because you're happy. Because you're free. Because you're grateful. Wouldn't you rather do all the things you do because you're happy and you're free and grateful instead of because you're afraid? Only Jesus allows you to do life that way. A Christian is someone who says to God, will you please do for me what I now know I cannot do for myself? Will you forgive me? Will you remove the reproach against me? Reproach is the continual darkening sense that you have not quite measured up, that you're not quite worthy, that you still may be disqualified because your insufficiencies still might be exposed. A Christian is someone who no longer fears exposure of their insides and their insufficiencies because they lean on, not your ability to appease God or even the Christian God, but you lean on Jesus by faith to deliver you. And when you get that He saves you because He loves you, you start to become a really different kind of person. And it is cool. You become somebody at Stanford whose anxiousness starts to die. And it is cool. And people get confused when they encounter you. I've seen it, and it is awesome. When they see unanxious people, because you're no longer driven by fear and threat, but because you know your God is good. You're no longer governed by the gods of this culture. You'll worship a life-giving God instead of all these life-taking gods. And the Bible calls that freedom. And that's what the Israelites groaned for, and that's what we're groaning for, and Jesus alone offers it. Let's pray.